Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, David Crow. Joining me in the studio today are Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest this week is David Livingston, chief executive of Citigroup in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. This week we'll be discussing a pay cut at Standard Chartered as its chief executive Bill Winters attempts to close down a damaging row over his pension allowance. Citigroup's confidence in the City of London, regardless of the outcome of Brexit, and gathering clouds for Facebook's much-hyped digital currency, Libra. First up to that story on Standard Chartered, which has spent much of this year locked in a fight with its investors over the nearly £6 million pay package it intends to award to Chief Executive Bill Winters this year. Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, is here to discuss the latest. So, Stephen, you and I had a scoop this week on plans by Mr Winters to accept a voluntary pay cut to try to head off this shareholder row. What's the latest? Well, the latest is Mr Winters' chairman, his boss, Jose Vinales, has attempted to take charge of the scandal and has been out meeting the bank's biggest investors, trying to work out how he can get them back on side after 40% of them voted against or abstained from the bank's remuneration policy at its latest annual report. Mr Winters deepened this scandal when he called some of his shareholders immature and unhelpful when they criticised his 474,000 pension allowance. And it now appears that the CEO, the American CEO, former JP Morgan executive, is going to have to back down and concede to investors' demands about extra discretionary pay he's been given and also parts of his pension, which are essentially being transformed into cash for him and weren't really a pension at all. Tell us a little bit more about these pension allowances that some bank CEOs and indeed CEOs of FTSE 100 companies tend to receive. So usually under good guidelines, executives should get no more than 10% of their base salary in pension. But Mr. Winters was actually getting as much as 40, meaning that under the guidelines, his pension should be reduced quite considerably to somewhere around £120,000 from its current almost 500000 That's a considerable pay cut for a European bank CEO because you'll remember a lot of their incentive pay isn't quite coming through at where they would have expected to be when they took these jobs three to four years ago because the share prices of most banks have fallen so drastically since then. And in addition to that, it's very hard for them to meet their return on equity targets in an environment of negative interest rates, Brexit, slowing economies and a general structural decline in the investment banking side of the industry. Now, already HSBC, it was the first bank to basically bow to this shareholder pressure and the former, the now former chief executive, John Flint, he took his pension down voluntarily to 10% of his base salary. 
And I think RBS, with the appointment of Alison Rose, is going to be down at 10% too. What about the other two big UK banks then? We have Lloyds and Barclays, both above that 10% threshold. After Mr Winters takes this pay cut, which we expect to be announced in the next few months, will they have to follow suit? Um, the pressure on them will be intense to follow suit. I mean, Mr. Winters resisted it in, I think, probably the strongest terms possible. And he's had a very chastening experience afterwards. When banker pay has been in so much focus and attracts wider media attention than just the financial press, it's hard to see how these awards can be justified when they go against guidelines. So we do expect some movement with Antonio Hortorosario at Lloyd's. And Jess Daly, obviously, at Barclays as well. But they have said remarkably little in public compared to Standard Chartered. So really, the media focus is on the emerging markets focus bank at the moment. But we will see movement in other areas. Well, watch this space. OK, next up, on to Brexit. As Boris Johnson races to try to keep his pledge to take Britain outside the EU by October 31st, Many in the city fear that it will lose its status as Europe's preeminent financial centre. But Stephen, you've been talking to one large US bank that says that's not the case. Tell us more. That's right. David Livingston, who is the new EMEA CEO of Citigroup, an Australian man. He just came in about eight or nine months ago. When we sat down for an interview and we printed a story, he was very bullish on the future of London as a financial centre. Citigroup has always had its European headquarters here, but it has been building up quite substantially in other locations such as Dublin, Frankfurt, and especially Paris, which is proving to be one of the more popular alternate destinations for especially international bankers who might have to leave London. However, despite the chaos going on in politics at the moment, Mr. Livingston was very adamant that London was going to remain the region's financial centre and he laid out a constellation of advantages that the city has built up over time. So firstly, we spoke about the implications on city for Brexit and what would have to happen. And he guided us through what he imagines would be a transfer of financing, which is heavily concentrated in London at the moment, that will migrate to European subsidiaries, newly set up subsidiaries by international banks who will have to bulk up over time. So we'll see how that pans out, but I suppose we are focused really on the, on the real economy implications as well as financial yeah. services, which are how will our clients react to the needs to look at trade flows differently, investment flows differently, but the financing of European corporates who may have either a reduced access or reduced appetite to access the London markets, which have represented the deep capital markets of this region, how might that shift the burden onto the you know, Euro-domiciled entities, including us, but others as well, to make sure that there's a sort of a vibrant financing and funding of mm-hmm. corporate activity in Europe? Mr Livingston also addressed, rarely for a banker, some of the politics associated with this. The ECB and EU wants control of financial services, especially financial services related to the euro. And after the UK leaves... The Eurozone, it wants a lot of that activity, trading, clearing, financing, to be essentially repatriated to the continent, partially for financial stability reasons, but also, one must imagine, for the benefits such as extra taxation and business that come with it. I think that there's no doubt that there will be, and particularly in mm-hmm. how policymakers, regulators, and then underlying corporate, particularly corporates, but also investors, act in this world. There is a degree of EU sovereignty about this, and particularly Euro sovereignty, and making, you know, that that there's a 
But if you like, the euro market is located within the eurozone. So we'll see how that develops. Sure, there'll be business which leaves London, but I don't think London fundamentally changes as the regional financial centre in yeah. part because it's the global financial centre. And there's a great deal of global business which comes through London. And mm-hmm. that's part of, you know, why, why is that? It's the unique time yeah. zone, it's the rule of law, it's the institutions that exist here, it's the huge support mechanisms in terms of professional mm. services, law, insurance, media, all these other things which contribute to what makes a vibrant financial capital. And London doesn't lose any of, uh, any of that. So was that sort of playing in your mind when you made the decision to buy the tower here? I wouldn't say playing in the mind, but it was a case of we were fully confident. Not only was that a sensible you know, financial decision, but we were also very happy that it, it represented a statement that we were mm. you know, maintaining our regional headquarters here in, in London. Mr Livingston then went on to address some of the criticisms of City that have been emerging from investors in recent years. City's performance had lagged two of its major rivals, JP Morgan and Bank of America, since the financial crisis, causing some to call for it to be more focused on its more profitable core businesses and trim parts of its vast global network and product suite. Mr Livingston countered this criticism and said that City's breadth in its geographic network remained a major strategic advantage for the lender that set it apart from some more focused investment banks. I think there are some components of that which I'd you know, maybe debate, which is that the implication that breadth of product capability or breadth of network therefore means there's lack of focus. I would argue yeah. strongly against that because... If you look at the breadth of what City's able yeah. to do for individual clients, so let's put a client lens yeah. rather than a you know a flag on a map strategy, yeah. that it is of enormous value to yeah. a huge number of multinational companies, sovereigns, investors, yeah. that they can engage with City and we can take them to 99 countries and territories around the world, staying within a City system, mm-hmm. within something which is therefore efficient, it's safe, it's cyber-protected, mm-hmm. all of those things is massively valuable. And so to me, that doesn't represent lack of focus, that represents a integrated network. And I've been in organizations which didn't have that. And I can tell you for client activity and for our own strategic strength, that's really important. There have been a lot of depressing comments about the future of Europe's economy coming out from banks recently. But once again, Mr Livingston was less pessimistic than others talking about the attractiveness of Europe as a place for investment and bank operations. Before we throw Western Europe under the bus, I think you could, you know, the depth of industries that exist here, you know, the maturity of industries, the size of companies, Mm -hmm. and frankly, global organisations headquartered in Europe. Don't forget that it's not just, you know, business within Europe. And that's the UK, it's Switzerland, it's Mm -hmm. France, it's, it's Germany. So from a delivery point of view, you're delivering for those clients in the United States, in Latin America, in in Asia Pacific. So that represents, I think, a continuing, even if there is some challenges to domestic growth or the the challenges which come from um, negative interest rates. But also, you go to Central Europe, you go to the Middle East, you go to Africa, and in you know, Eastern, you know, proper Eastern Europe, and not just where do we go with our business, but where are investors going, where are corporates going, in terms of where they see potential for higher returns and yield, and they might generate in the eurozone or, or what have you, and that's an active conversation, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Stephen, and thanks to Mr. Livingston too. It's always nice to have a glass half full optimist on the show. And our final item this week is on Libra, Facebook's digital currency, which was announced amid much fanfare earlier this year. We're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, 
So, Laura, Libra's had an eventful few weeks and you've got a story today with some more bad news about Facebook's much-hyped crypto project. What's been going on? So certainly Facebook's Libra hasn't had an easy few weeks. In the last three weeks alone, they've lost seven of their 26 founding members. Those seven members include some of the biggest names, people like MasterCard, Stripe, Visa, PayPal. These were the members who really gave Libra a veil of credibility and made it seem like it could be a really big mover in the payment space. And not only have they lost members, they haven't managed to unveil any new members. So when the list first came out, they didn't have any banks involved, but they were saying that banks would ultimately work with them. So far, they haven't managed to reveal any banks involved. The key issue with banks and for the payments companies who have now pulled out has been around the regulatory piece. Basically, people can't get comfortable that this very complicated cryptocurrency, which Facebook had hoped would be used by the two billion unbanked and underbanked people in the world, that this can pass regulatory scrutiny. And our story today is actually the chief executive of ING, which is one of Europe's biggest banks, saying that the regulatory concerns could make it impossible for banks to even bank Facebook itself if Facebook went ahead with Libra without solving all of these concerns. So his argument is that banks are effectively guardians to the financial system and they can't bank companies who are undermining the safety or undermining the soundness of the financial system. So in the event they were banking a company and that company was hypothetically developing a system which made the financial system more vulnerable to money laundering, that would be an issue. And this is the first time I've really thought of it in those terms because you can kind of argue, well, if you can't get the banks involved, just do it without those players. But actually what Ralph Hammers, the ING CEO, was saying indicates that there could be much broader ramifications for Facebook itself if it were to push ahead with this legal project without fully solving all of regulators' concerns. And so can these regulatory fears be overcome? Is there something that Facebook can do to salvage this? Facebook say that they are going to address all of these concerns. Facebook's chief executive Mark Zuckerberg will appear before the US Congress on Wednesday and he will try to reassure people that they are taking these concerns seriously and that they're going to work with regulators and take their time on the launch. The issue is some of these concerns are so fundamental to the heart of the project that it's not even about whether Facebook wants to solve them, it's whether they can be solved. The essential premise of Libra is complicated and there's a whole range of issues. So what they want to do is make it easier for unbanked people to transfer money and to own money. And they want to do this through a coin. And this coin will be stable, not like Bitcoin, which fluctuates loads. This coin will be stable because it's backed by a range of currencies in a basket. It's a very complex mechanism because the value of the coin can go up and down. It also requires Facebook to maintain a reserve of all these currencies. And in order to do that, they need a bank to deposit their reserve. And if the project were as big as Facebook initially thought it could be, then actually the size of that reserve could be material to some economies and could effectively be a central bank almost in its own right. So there's those issues. Then the other kind of fundamental one that regulators are particularly concerned about is just the know your client and the money laundering implication of this. And this is that Facebook has said it will not necessarily track all of the transfers. And that's a huge issue because the idea of people being able to move money across borders instantly in a way that isn't tracked, you can see that will be very attractive to money launderers and to anyone else who wanted to illicitly move funds. And that's the concern Mr. Hammers was kind of speaking to because he was saying, they can't allow their bank to be used in any way to facilitate financial crime. I think banks have had so many fines, they are very wary of being drawn into anything that could leave them vulnerable to being seen to allow the financial system to be used for the proceeds of crime. So that's certainly not the reception that Facebook would have wanted for Libra. 
I suppose we need to now ask the question, is Libra dead on arrival? Facebook is insisting that this thing lives on and this thing will happen. Bankers privately say it is game over. I mean, Jamie Dimon, chief executive of JP Morgan Chase, who we should say has been very sceptical on Bitcoin and crypto, he said last week that it was a neat idea, but it wouldn't happen. Other bankers privately talk about it as being over and they say that not only are the regulatory hurdles insurmountable, Facebook and Libra lack the skills to surmount them. So Facebook has been going around talking to banks about it, but talking to banks who've talked to Facebook, it seems like Facebook doesn't understand and Libra doesn't understand the need to modify the premise. So Facebook and Libra came out with this white paper. This white paper has been shown to have many issues, but what we're not hearing or what the banks are not hearing from Facebook is any willingness to substantially modify what it is they're proposing to do. And I think that will be one of the interesting things that we might hear from Mark Zuckerberg come Wednesday, whether he's just going to say, listen, trust us, we will figure this out, or whether he will admit, you know what, there are flaws in how we initially thought about this and we're going to fundamentally change our thinking on some aspects. If he comes out and says we're going to fundamentally change our thinking on some aspects, that would change the tone of some of the dialogue, certainly, because I think the view is that not only has the Libra project been naive, but it's been wedded to its naivety. So I think if there was an openness to fundamentally change the project, that might help get around some of the regulators' concerns. The thing is, though, if you change it too much, you won't be able to achieve what it set out to achieve. And that's the essential paradox, because in order to become this global cryptocurrency to enable fast movement of funds all over the world for both the banked and the unbanked, that's a very hard thing to do. And the more of these safeguards you put in, the harder it makes getting to that goal. So I think certainly you got to say at this point in the game, the odds are stacked against Libra. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Laura. Let's see what Mr Zuckerberg has to say for himself during his testimony on the Hill. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Stephen and Laura and our guest from City, David Livingston. And to thank you too for listening. We've launched a new podcast this month called The Rackman Review, a weekly look at global affairs by the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rackman. This week's show will take a look at the Trump administration's trade war and we'll hear from one of the architects of its policy towards China. The show is exclusively for FT subscribers. So if that's you, please go to ft.com forward slash Rackman Review and sign up for a taste of the global political debates that Gideon writes about in his columns. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.